Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Daryl Kimball, Executive Director of the Arms Control Association, who talks about why his group and other human rights organizations worldwide oppose President Biden's decision to deliver U.S. cluster bombs to Ukraine. Ben Burgess, adjunct professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, who explains why he believes that the U.S. Supreme Court, now under the control of an extremist right-wing supermajority, is in need of urgent reform. And Christina Ceballos, founder of the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Support website, who discusses a viable option available to public service sector workers to eliminate their student debt. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. If the mercenary Wagner Group under Yevgeny Prigozhin had not marched on Moscow in their brief unsuccessful rebellion, the Army's next stop may have been the West African nation of Burkina Faso. The June mutiny in Russia ended when Prigozhin agreed to go into exile in Belarus. Yet, the Wagner leader remained in Russia, reportedly residing in his native St. Petersburg. Wagner's Russian troops are intact for now, but their future is uncertain. The Economist reports that Wagner is Russia's partner in the Central African Republic and Mali, as well as five other African states. Prigozhin has contracts to extract wealth from gold mines in Sudan, and his 5,000 troops in Africa help expand Russia's sphere of influence on the continent. The mercenary group relies on the Russian state for military supplies, and Russia depends on Wagner to operate in areas where Moscow doesn't want to have an official footprint. The Century Investigative Group reports Wagner soldiers have played a key role in a campaign of murder, torture, and rape in the Central African Republic, and has driven civilians out of areas where its affiliated companies have been awarded mining rights. Voters in Guatemala surprised many observers by embracing center-left anti-corruption candidate Bernardo Aravalo who won enough votes in the Central American nation's June 25th first-round presidential election to make it into the runoff that will be held on August 20th. The former diplomat who recently entered Congress is the son of one of only two leftist presidents in Guatemala's democratic era. Arevalo will face Sandra Torres, a former first lady who ran and lost two previous presidential campaigns. The first-round election results revealed growing discontent among Guatemalan voters, with 24% of the ballots being spoiled or left blank. Among the 19 candidates running, Torres won 16% of the vote, while Arevalo received 12%. Guatemala headed into the election with experts warning of Democratic backsliding due to incumbent President Alejandro Giamatti's authoritarian attacks targeting journalists human rights activists, and anti-corruption prosecutors. Arevalo says that if he wins the presidency, his administration would welcome back dissidents who fled into exile, 
focus on battling corruption and reform co-opted institutions. In the years since President Obama signed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act into law on March 23, 2010, 39 states and Washington, D.C. have signed on for Medicare expansion, enabling tens of millions of Americans to obtain health insurance. North Carolina was one of the holdouts. Over the past 13 years, the state has missed out on an estimated $521 million in payouts each month that could have prevented seven rural hospitals from closing over the past 10 years. On March 23rd, all that changed when the State House of Representatives voted 87 to 24 on a bipartisan basis to make North Carolina the 40th state to approve Medicaid expansion. Despite strong Republican opposition, the state's Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, persisted in leading a broad coalition to advocate for expansion. In North Carolina, 80% of the uninsured are working adults, with some single adults working multiple jobs who still cannot afford health insurance. With Medicaid expansion, 600,000 more adults will be eligible to receive affordable health insurance coverage. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. President Biden announced on July 7th that he's authorized the delivery of cluster munitions to Ukraine, despite the fact that 123 nations around the world signed the 2008 convention to ban the use of these weapons, including many of Washington's NATO allies. Cluster bombs that can be fired from the air, ground, or sea release tens or hundreds of explosive bomblets that kill indiscriminately. Unexploded bomblets or duds can remain in the ground of former battlefields for years or decades, where civilian victims of random explosions are often children. President Biden justified delivery of these U.S.-made cluster munitions, saying that Ukraine's military was running out of conventional artillery shells during their current counteroffensive. Both Ukraine and Russia have already been using cluster bombs in the 18-month-long war, and that Ukraine's government has pledged to only use these weapons on their own territory. Your reporter spoke with Daryl Kimball, executive director of the Arms Control Association, who talks about why his group and other human rights organizations worldwide oppose President Biden's decision to transfer U.S. cluster bombs to Ukraine and pending legislation in Congress that would block the transfer of these weapons. The war of Russia against Ukraine uh, over the last 18 months has already been uh, a brutal struggle that has uh, killed so many and, and damaged much of Ukraine. And our main concern here is that we see the supply by the United States to Ukraine of these particularly nasty kinds of uh, weapons as posing additional risk to civilians, not just in the, the, the war now, but in the weeks and the months and the years afterwards because of the unique characteristics of 
uh, cluster munitions and the tens of millions of sub-munitions that are likely to be added to the unexploded ordnance um, across the battlefields in, in eastern Ukraine. And so, you know, we understand and appreciate the rationale of the Biden administration for supplying Ukraine with the ammunition it needs to defend itself against Russian aggression. But we think that the United States and allies of Ukraine should focus on supplying Ukraine with what are called unitary munitions, precision munitions that don't have a high dud rate like cluster munitions, which are indiscriminate and create a lot of uh, dud or unexploded uh, munitions. Uh, so that's why we're, we're concerned. That's why we've opposed this. So let me stop there. President Biden and those in his administration and those who support this move on cluster bombs uh, talk about the supplying of cluster munitions to Ukraine as only a temporary measure until more of the 155 millimeter conventional artillery shells are available. They talk about the fact that both Russia and Ukraine have used cluster bombs over the last 18 months of this war. And we're told Ukraine will only use the weapons on their own territory and therefore they have plans to clean up those duds that are so lethal, especially for children and other civilians. Well, that's the argument. I mean, in the, the most compelling part of that, I'd say the only compelling part, is that uh, the Ukrainian forces are short of the conventional ammunition that it has been expending at very high rates in this war. The supply of these cluster munitions um, is going to lead to a larger number of unexploded ordnance in Ukraine, and that is going to be a legacy of this war that is going to last uh, for a very long time. Just because the Russians have been using cluster munitions provides no justification for the United States to supply Ukraine with these munitions. I mean, the Biden administration is arguing that the Russian cluster munitions have a 30 to 40 percent dud rate. That is, for every uh, 100 submunitions that are scattered across a field, you know, they're going to be 30 to 40 that don't explode and that will explode later if somebody comes into contact with them. The U.S. dud rate is less than 2.5 percent of the total. That is, quite frankly, baloney because the U.S. estimates uh, are based upon field experiments in highly controlled testing environments. People who've worked in this field in the Department of Defense, they estimate that the, the actual dud rate is somewhere around uh, 10 to 24%. So this means that there'll be far more unexploded uh, weapons uh, on the battlefields in Ukraine than the Biden administration is claiming. Democratic Representative Sarah Jacobs and Representative Ilhan Omar have introduced an amendment to the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act that would block the U.S. transfer of cluster bombs to Ukraine. Tell us more about that, if you would. Yeah, also, this is a last-minute uh, effort to try to block this. Um, I think this is an important uh, debate to have in Congress because Congress has itself put restrictions on the transfer of cluster munitions with failure rate of greater than one percent so that's what the biden administration is sending weapons that have a higher failure rate um if this amendment is allowed to uh, uh be voted on the floor uh it's going to be a close vote uh this could be something that the president decides to veto but i think this is an important way for members of congress to express their 
skepticism or concern about the United States transferring these um, very nasty and and prohibited uh, cluster munitions to Ukraine. That was Daryl Kimball, executive director of the Arms Control Association. Find more analysis and commentary on the Biden administration's decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Over the past year, the U.S. Supreme Court's right-wing extremist supermajority ignored decades of precedents to remove federal protection for abortion rights, weakened environmental regulations, and struck down gun safety laws. In the final week of its last term, the court majority ruled that a Colorado non-discrimination law that made it illegal for businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ customers was unconstitutional effectively ended affirmative action in college admissions, and blocked President Biden's plan for student debt relief. The high court had previously ruled in the 2010 Citizens United case that corporations are people, opening up the floodgates of unaccountable and unlimited campaign cash in our electoral system, and gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 that ushered in the passage of dozens of racially targeted voter suppression laws in Republican-controlled states. With reactionary politicians in robes, now firmly in control of the Supreme Court, and on course to repeal many of the advances for civil and human rights made over the last 100 years, there are growing calls for intervention through expanding the number of the High Court's justices or the imposition of term limits. When asked in a recent interview if he supported such measures, President Biden rejected these proposals, maintaining that such actions would politicize the court in a way that is not healthy. Your reporter spoke with Ben Burgess, adjunct professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, who explains why he believes the Supreme Court is already dangerously politicized and that reform is urgently needed. It's not really the case that uh, the justices of the Supreme Court are these dispassionate legal scholars who are just trying to commune with uh, Madison and Hamilton and, you know, and like channel uh, the, uh, the event of the writing of the Constitution. These are political actors. It is not a coincidence that in these cases that we've just been talking about, all of the people that we quite correctly refer to as conservative justices voted for the conservative ruling and all of the people we think of as liberal justices uh, voted against it because you're not much of a constitutional lawyer if you can't find an argument within the majestic ambiguities of the constitution for or against any of these things you know really what these are is these are political actors And I I think in a particularly galling way right now, I mean, what makes it sting more than usual is that not only is there this large right-wing majority on uh, the court now, but it's made up of justices who were appointed by two presidents who, at least initially, I mean, Bush won re-election, but uh, Bush and Trump both initially lost the popular vote, you know, so there are these people who most Americans who voted didn't vote for who became president, who appointed these people who are now in a position to impose uh, conservative policy preferences, in some cases overturning uh, precedents that are several decades old, that you know that felt like they were just going to stay there forever. And really the question is, what are the other branches of government going to do to respond to it? And unfortunately right now, Joe Biden's answer seems to be nothing. 
Yeah. And what is it about Joe Biden? Why do you think he rejects out of hand these uh, solutions that have uh, been supported by some members of his own party in Congress that includes uh, imposing term limits on the justices as well as uh, expanding the court, which has been done several times through our history? Yeah, I mean, so the the idea um, that Joe Biden has that it would politicize uh, the court to do those things only makes sense if you think that it's a non-political institution, which kind of for the reasons we already talked about, I, I think makes uh, very little sense. I mean, I, I think that uh, what it gets down to is that Joe Biden is a centrist Democrat, and of course, uh, in several of these cases that we've been talking about, he would prefer more liberal rulings. That's why he's expressing a little frustration uh, with the court by calling them not normal. Uh, but ultimately, I think that, like most centrists, he is more concerned with the stability of American institutions uh, than uh, than he than he is with like the outcome of any particular one of these cases. I mean, if you go back and look at Joe Biden's record over the course of his several decades in public life uh, as a senator from, uh, from from Delaware, who was sort of nicknamed the, uh, the senator from the, you know, the, the credit card companies uh, that were headquartered in Delaware. If you read uh, Bronco March teaches book about Joe Biden, uh, Yesterday's Man, he gets into a lot of the stuff there. Um, you know, he, he was never any kind of, you know, left-wing firebrand by, by any means, right? He was, um, you know, he was a sort of tough on crime, uh, tough on people declaring bankruptcy, famously, uh, kind of uh, center-right Democrat. And I'm sure he would have preferred that the Supreme Court had ruled differently on abortion and affirmative action, but I think his, and several of these other cases, but... Uh, Ultimately, his priority list is just going to be different from anybody who sees current American society as fundamentally more unjust. And one, just one other point about this, that it's not even that Joe Biden's priority list is different from like what you know, some socialist uh, president's priority list would be, what Bernie Sanders would be if he were elected president, etc. Um, FDR. Right? One of the most revered Democratic presidents of all time actually did propose a court expansion in 1937 when the Supreme Court kept uh, blocking New Deal, uh, New Deal initiatives. And even though you know Congress didn't go along with it, uh, it's something that does seem to have had some effect in moderating uh, the court's behavior because I think they were actually worried about getting you know serious pushback if this happened. And you know. So the, the question is, well, was it wrong uh, for FDR to do it then? If so, why was it wrong? And I know everybody always says, well, then the Republicans would do the same thing. Okay, fine. Uh, if, if, bo if both parties, when they're in power and they think that the Supreme Court is overreaching, uh, exerted some counter-influence and, uh, and, uh, and tried to, uh, to push back against what the, uh, the court was doing, then ultimately the, you know, the decision is made by the voters, which I am pretty happy with because I like democracy. Well, I want to thank you, Ben. And, and just a, a quick last question, if I could, and that would be, what do you think individual voters, what's their role in this right now? What action can we take as individuals or groups of indi individuals to put pressure on the Biden administration, Congress, and other 
levers of power in Washington and in the states to challenge what the Supreme Court has been doing. I mean, ultimately, uh, I, I think we're you know we're going to need political leadership that's much better than Biden and the mainstream Democratic leadership, you know, in order to get the kind of people who are willing to take more quote unquote extreme actions like reviving FDR's uh, court expansion uh, plan, and uh, you know, we need to build up alternative institutions from the grassroots. I wish there was a really good, I wish there was an easier answer, but I don't think there is. That was Ben Burgess adjunct professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, a columnist with Jacobin Magazine, and host of the Give Them an Argument podcast. Find a link to his recent article titled Biden is Wrong, the Supreme Court is Already Politicized, and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. the Supreme Court's right-wing majority ruled that President Joe Biden's student debt relief plan was unconstitutional on June 30th, hopes of getting ten dollars to $20,000 in debt canceled were dashed for most of the 40 million people with federal student loans. In response, Biden is now pursuing another option for student debt relief. His administration has begun the process of working under the authority of the Higher Education Act of 1965 which Biden said will take longer, but is the best path that remains to providing for as many borrowers as possible with debt relief. However, legal observers predict that any plan Biden proposes is sure to trigger future lawsuits by opponents. But the estimated 25% of student debt borrowers who are employed in the public service sector have another option for erasing whatever debt remains after they've made payments for 10 years. It's called Public Service Loan Forgiveness, or PSLF. Christina Ceballos, who's worked her entire career in public service jobs, was able to erase her student debt by figuring out the system. She then set up a Facebook page to help others. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Ceballos about how she did it and how others can benefit. In 2007, I returned from Peace Corps and moved to Austin, Texas, and continued to work in public service. In October of that year, George W. Bush signed the law that enacted public service loan forgiveness. Public service loan forgiveness was passed because the government wanted to ensure an educated pipeline of talent uh, to come into public service with the incentive that after 10 years of public service or 120 months of qualifying employment and 120 months of payments towards those federal student loans, the rest would be forgiven. It doesn't matter how much you make. What matters is who employs you, whether it's government, nonprofit, or another public service entity that you are full-time or working more than 30 hours a week. It does depend on your income. So if you're a lower income individual in public service, you'll have a smaller payment because public service loan forgiveness is a program built on the income driven repayment program, which is an even older student loan forgiveness program. 
So while you're in public service, you get on an income-driven repayment plan. So you actually pay a smaller percentage than what you would pay on a standard payment plan. Can you just explain a little about how you went from successfully dealing with your own student debt to reaching thousands of people in a similar situation? I did start off with myself trying to navigate the program and got all my ducks in a row, got my paperwork in for all the public service employment I've had since 2007. And I was also at the same time looking for other support. At the time, I was mostly on Facebook, so I was looking there and I didn't see too many active groups. So in 2018, I took the plunge and started this Facebook group called Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program Support. And it's a private group, so you have to, for anyone out there who's listening, you can join by answering a few simple questions. And over time, I built a team of, of 17 other moderators and administrators to help me help many other people. So I have not done this alone. I knew I didn't have all the answers either. How many people are involved in your group and how many loans have been canceled? So we have currently 160,000 members that are actively pursuing public service loan forgiveness. And so far we have positioned $665 million in our group to be forgiven or has been forgiven under PSLF. And I think we'll, we'll definitely surpass 700 million and 800 million and possibly a billion before all this is done. <laughs> Christina Ceballos. Has the Supreme Court decision that President Biden couldn't put his loan forgiveness plan into practice had an impact on these public service borrowers? No, this has no bearing on people pursuing PSLF or who want to pursue PSLF. The Biden-Harris forgiveness that was just struck down by SCOTUS, by the Supreme Court, it is completely different from public service loan forgiveness. Is part of the problem that people who are eligible don't know they're eligible? I had already known about public service loan forgiveness. And honestly, I don't remember <laughs> hearing anything about it at my exit, my exit counseling that you have to do at the end, uh, the, when you graduate. It's a requirement by, uh, by the federal government <laughs> when you take out federal direct loans. I honestly do not recall being told about public service loan forgiveness, let alone about income-driven repayment, which is an even older program. The Federal Department of Education needs to be doing a better job of getting accurate information directly to the borrowers, because borrowers are going to their loan servicers first, and the loan servicers are not giving them accurate information, and it's not entirely their fault. And there are people who are falling through the cracks because they're not getting the information that they need. That was Christina Ceballos, founder of the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program support page on Facebook. Find a link to her website and additional resources for student borrowers by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website, 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WXOJ in Florence, Massachusetts, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, Pala Res Radio in Pala, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.